One second. Okay, we are live. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Guide to Existence. I'm your host, Rabbi Gavriel Haran. And today, as we always do, we're going to explore a mitzvah in the Torah through the lens of Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, and Hasidic spirituality. And today we have a very interesting topic. Topic for today is the idea of Jewish slavery. Don't get too excited. We're not getting all controversial and philosophical and ethical here tonight. We're really going to talk about one very specific mitzvah, and I will explain it momentarily. So last week's Parsha, we talked about last week the giving of the Torah the two tablets, the thunder and lightning at Mount Sinai, very, very spiritual stuff. And this week, essentially, the Torah begins. And it is a major letdown. Because if you were excited by the intense spirituality of, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt, so you might expect things to continue to be inspirational and exciting. But the reality is, is that this week's Parsha is basically the most mundane Parsha in the Torah. This week's Parsha is full of basic laws of everyday life. What do I mean by that? This is essentially Talmud 101, this week's Parsha. Parsha is called Mishpatim, which means laws. And it goes through the laws of damages. If you accidentally knock out someone's eye, Right? You're familiar with the famous eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth passage. So that is actually very mis misunderstood verse in the Torah, which uh, was mis kind of twisted out of proportion by the Christians. Really means that if a person knocks out someone's eye, they have to pay the value of an eye. It's all about money with you people, you Jews. Anyway, but it is. And we're talking about 3,000 years ago. When the rest of the world was essentially barbaric, the Jewish people had a complete and detailed system of legal statutes on how to run society. From accidental damages, from your animals killing someone else's animals, your ox gores someone else's ox, essentially like if you crashed into someone's car, right? Digging pits in public places and people falling into your pit. Fires, lighting a fire. What happens if your fire travels to somewhere else? Are you responsible or did the fire go on its own? All right? All sorts of monetary matters. Paying laborers. Negligence. Theft. Lending people to things. Are they responsible if you lend someone to something and then it gets lost? Are they responsible or are you responsible? What if they rent it from you? Or if they just borrow it? Right? Or what if, what if you ask them to just watch it? Or what if you pay them to watch it? Okay, so... This is essentially the Torah portion, and it's quite anticlimactic. But do not lose hope, because at the end of the Parsha, we're back to Mount Sinai again, and it repeats in more detail the story of the giving of the Torah and the thunder and lightning and the revelation of God, and it ends with the most famous two words the Jewish people ever said, which is the phrase, Nase Venishma which means the Jewish people said, we will do everything it says in the Torah, and then we will hear and understand it. We don't need to understand everything. We accept fully the entire Torah. And this is considered one of the most quintessential moments when the Jewish people accepted the Torah. So it starts out Monday and gets exciting again at the end. And 
if there's time, I'd like to explain why we go through that process of thunder and lightning, mundane, back to thunder and lightning. Okay, so let's try to remember to come back to that. Another thing that I want to throw in, which if you remind me at the end, I will explain, is that the Zohar, the book of Kabbalah says this week's Parsha, with all its mundane matters, the Zohar says, Dahi Raza did Gilgule Neshama. This is the secret of reincarnation of souls. It's very interesting. What does this Parsha have to do with reincarnation? Stay tuned. If we remember at the end, we'll try to tie it in. So what is the very first mitzvah of this series of laws? The very first mitzvah is the mitzvah of what's called an Evid Ivri, which is a Jewish slave. Really, probably a better translation would be a Jewish indentured servant. What's the story? It's a person who was either very poor or stole money from someone, spent whatever they stole, and did not have the means to pay back. And therefore, the court mandates that they become a slave, an indentured servant to the person they stole from. For six years. They work for six years, and then in the seventh year, which is the Shemitah year, this year actually in the Jewish calendar, every seven years, there's a Sabbath for an entire year. Just like we have a Shabbos every seven days, so every seven years there's a Shabbos for the land of Israel, and in that Shabbos, farmers aren't allowed to work the field, and indentured servants go free. And that's it. That's the story. I mean, like, you know, of all things, to start off the Torah, it's completely irrelevant to everyone's life. Not anyone here ever become a slave? No, ever hear of anyone that was? We live in America. I mean, it was just Martin Luther King Jr. Day a couple of days ago. Like, we don't believe in slavery, right? And the whole subject is very, very bothersome for a modern listener, the whole idea of slavery. But we're not really talking about slavery today. We're talking about this indentured servant business, which is not real slavery because he goes free. And that, the Torah makes it a very big point of saying that he goes free after the seventh year. By the way, it's interesting to note. Never mind. Okay. So, so what happens if this, 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 this unfortunate Jewish guy who stole and became a slave for six, six years, what happens at the end of his service if he decides, you know what? He actually likes it. He likes being a slave. He likes being an indentured servant. Let me tell you why he might like it. Okay? The Torah and the Talmud and, and the Rambam in the Code of Jewish Law is very clear that the Talmud says someone who acquires a servant or a slave actually acquires a master because you have to treat him better than you treat yourself. That's slavery according to Judaism. You have one pillow, who gets it? He does. He's got to eat what you eat. He's got to be comfortable. If you damage him in any way physically, he goes free. And that's a Jewish and a non-Jewish slave. right? Not, not allowed to beat them, abuse, the kind of stuff that went on in American slavery. Now, the whole concept of slavery is very foreign to us in the modern world, especially because the image of slavery that we had was the American slavery, which was terribly barbaric, where they literally would 
kidnap people in Africa and sell them into slavery. So that's that was never allowed, according to Judaism. There was a concept of a slave market from people who had been uh, conquered in war, and war was a reality of the world. And if you won the war, what do you do with the captives? So in the ancient world, they became your servants. According to Judaism, if you go into the jungle and you kidnap someone, that's called kidnapping. That's not allowed. You're not allowed to do that, according to the Torah. But if you fight a war, which for certain reasons is legitimate, so then it's better to put these people to work than to, of course, than to kill them. So that was the system. But again, they were treated incredibly humanely. A non-Jewish slave was became basically Jewish. They had to keep mitzvahs. And if the master sets them free, they become a full-fledged Jew. So they had to go in a mikvah and basically convert to become a Jewish, uh, a, a Jewish-owned slave. And again, it came with all sorts of responsibilities. So why might this slave not want to leave? He's got room and board. He doesn't have to worry about paying the bills, right? His master treats him really well. So what happens in that seventh year if the guy says, you know what? I don't want to leave you. I want to stay a slave forever. I want you to own me and I want to work for you. So I don't have to worry about taking care of my bills. So the master takes, there's a ritual the Torah describes. The master takes him to a doorpost, takes an awl and makes a hole in his ear. But literally, he pierces his ear into the mezuzah, into the doorpost. And he becomes an eternal slave. And the Talmud asks, why? <laughs> why this whole ritual? Like, the guy wants to do it, let him do it. But why do you have to pierce his ear? And the Talmud says, because the ear that heard at Mount Sinai, I am the Lord your God. You Will be my are to be my slave, my servant. These Jewish people become servants of God. So the ear that heard that you are my servants, and the word slave we should probably not use because that's really very derogatory and very misleading and brings up all sorts of t- terrible connotations. Let's use the word servant from now on. The the ear that heard that you are my servants at Mount Sinai went and decided to acquire another master. That's what the Talmud says. And the mezuzah, why in the doorpost? Because the mezuzah, which was the doorpost in Egypt, where the Jews put the blood of the Paschal lamb when when they were leaving Egypt, the doorpost, which heard God say, you are my servants, is a witness. And again, he went and he acquired another master. So now I want you guys to think for a moment. Mike, can you, can you are you at the gym? I need some face face here. We need a little Talmudic thought right now. Okay, um, okay. So, so start thinking. Okay, what's the obvious question? Okay, we're gonna dissect this mitzvah and try to understand why this is the first mitzvah given to Jewish people after Mount Sinai. What is the obvious question? Listen again. I'm gonna state it, and then I want you guys to figure it out. The ear that heard that God say, "I am the Lord your God at Mount Sinai," and therefore, which implies you are my servant, went and acquired another servant. Therefore, got to pierce that ear because that ear went against one of the Ten Commandments. What's a problem? What's problematic with this? What what doesn't fit or what what should we see in other areas of Judaism? If this is the case, think about it. Anyone? Any questions? Anyone bothered by this ritual? (laughs) 
True. That's true. It's it's, a, it's the right ear specifically. Here's the right ear. And that's Bingo. Bingo. Mike, hit it on the head. Hit it on the ear. Uh literally. Every transgression, one second. That means what happens if you don't keep Shabbos? Pierce the ear. The ear heard at Mount Sinai. Keep Shabbos. What if you don't honor your mother or father? Pierce the ear. The ear didn't, you know, or or anything else. Pierce that part of the body. Like what's why specifically this mitzvah? You go against their ten commandments, right? Actually fourteen. But there were a lot of things said at Mount Sinai. That means each of those things was heard by the ear. So worship idols, pierce the ear. Swear falsely, pierce the ear. Steal, pierce the ear. Well, actually, in this case, he did steal. But it could be he stole. But uh, all right. What else? Um, uh, you coveted your neighbor's wife? Pierce the ear. What's going on? Why specifically are we piercing this poor guy's ear? So I want to I want to add another twist to this. There's another problem. It says the mezuzah. Why specifically the mezuzah? Because the mezuzah that heard God say, "You are my servants," when He took us out of Egypt, but it doesn't say that in the Torah anywhere. There, nowhere in the Torah does it say, "You are my servants" in Egypt. It says it later on at Mount Sinai. God said, "You are my servants," but it doesn't say it in Egypt. So, to make it even worse. The prophet Jeremiah, Yermiyahu, many years later in his prophecy says that God made a bris, a covenant with the Jewish people in Egypt when he said, you are my servants. And again, it never says it anywhere in the Torah, but Jeremiah is telling us many years later. And Jeremiah says even further, and because of this mitzvah of setting the servant free after seven years, letting the slaves go, when we, because of us not keeping this mitzvah, we are going to be kicked out of the land of Israel. It's that important, this mitzvah. What in the world? Okay? So, let's begin. And last question, last question for today, is we literally just received the Torah at Mount Sinai. We heard God say, "You are, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. We all saw it, every Jew. Man, woman, child saw God speak, had the highest level of prophetic vision. Our souls leapt out of our bodies because of the incredible spirituality of that moment. We saw the sea split, another moment of revelation. We saw the ten plagues in Egypt. And then we're already talking about, you know, sometime in the future you're going to become thieves, you're going to steal, you're going to become slaves, you're going to be poor, like... How low can we, like, why are we already assuming the Jewish people are going to fall from their spiritual level? Like, we literally just had, like, the greatest revelation. And the very next thing says, by the way, sometime in the future, you're going to become a thief. And you're going to have to sell yourself into slavery. It's, ver it's very pessimistic. So somebody, yes, please. Right, we were slaves in Egypt just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. We've already been there. We were slaves, right? Slaves again? We just got freed from slavery. You want it? We're going to go back to slavery? 
Great question. Excellent question. And and it's going to be part of the answer, I think. So somebody asked me yesterday, said, Rabbi, what, what's going on? The Jewish people were at Mount Sinai and just all, saw all the different miracles I just talked about. And then like literally 40 days later, they worship a golden calf. They worship an idol. Like they just heard God say, don't worship idols. And suddenly they're worshiping idols. How could that be? How is that possible? Does anyone have an answer for how that is possible? Now, what the golden calf was, we'll talk about in a few weeks. But I'll tell you how it's possible. You ready? This is how I think it's possible. How come you accepted upon yourself to diet? Just a few weeks ago, it was New Year's, January 1st. You all made some sort of a uh, New Year's resolution, right? What happened to your diet? Or what about me? How come I'm not on the treadmill every night anymore? I mean, I promised. I started exercising just a year ago. Uh, not even a year ago. What happened? Or or what about what about all the things that you committed to do in your life that just didn't happen? What happened to that? What about the inspiration you felt when you just got married, right, Steph? You just got married a little while ago. Is it still as exciting as it was the first week? Where'd it go? The answer is very simple. Inspiration doesn't last. It fades, we forget, we fall, and we fail. How do we hold on to inspiration? How do we hold on to our commitments? And the answer, my friends, is in this week's Parsha, through the mundane, through the nitty-gritty, day in, day out, through the grind, through keeping our lofty vision while trudging through the day-to-day, through action, through daily actions. That's how we hold on to inspiration. We've talked about it here many times. But you can't keep the high. The high does not last because every high is automatically followed by a low. So let me ask you a question, right? We're really along the same tangent. We're so spiritual. God spoke to us, and yet we have all these laws. Laws for like, you know, basic stuff. Like, can't we figure it out by being spiritual? Like, can't we just work it out? Like, why do we need laws of like how to deal with monetary challenges? The guy's ox scored the other guy's ox. So the guy actually punched out someone's eye. Or the guy deliberately got in a fight with somebody. Why can't we just work it out? I mean, really, think about it. If you were really spiritual, couldn't you just work out stuff, work out your problems without laws? What do you think? Mike, what do you say? Jacob. So, 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 okay, excellent point. Without laws, everyone would think that their vision of the truth is the right one. But Jacob, let me ask you a question. Come on. You know a little bit about Jewish leadership, right? Our righteous people are incredibly humble. They're, in fact, the last to think that they're right. They think everyone else is right. If we were all really on a high spiritual level, couldn't we just all work out our things by giving in and making sure the other person's happy? So I always tell my kids, I reward my kids. Whoever's the one that gives in in the fight, I reward. Because that's a beautiful trait to let go. 
Okay, so, so each generation, there's a, Jacob's saying each generation falls lower and lower than the previous generation, but I think even in the previous generation, because we're talking, the Torah was given to the previous generation. The Torah was given to one of the greatest generations that ever lived, and yet they also fall again and again and again. I think the answer, my friends, is because you can't run a society based on spirituality. You need law and order. Because at the end of the day, people are people. We're human. And because we're human, we have pulls in different directions. And we make mistakes. We can't hold on to spirituality. Your average person, of course, there are individuals. But even the individuals rely on law and order, perhaps for the reason Jacob said. Because it's not up to us to decide if who's right. We need to have a system of law and order because in the end of the day, we don't live as spiritual beings 24-7. We live as human beings. And I want to share with you an amazing insight into what it means to be a human being in just a minute. So the secret to living like a Jew, living an inspired life 24-7, even though you're no longer inspired, is nase v'nishma, what the Jewish people said at Mount Sinai, those two incredible words that made history forever. We will do the entire Torah. We accept the entire Torah, and then we will come to understand. What does that mean? That doing takes precedence to spiritual understanding. It's through the doing that comes the inspiration again. Because we always lose the inspiration. Sorry, Steph. It goes away. What can I do? After you're married for two weeks, six months, a year, it becomes business as usual. Life. Life goes on. You forget the excitement. You forget the fireworks. But through the doing, through putting in the effort of keeping the spark alive by building the marriage, by building the relationship, by keeping the mitzvahs, the inspiration comes back. And this time you've earned it. So that's the three-part process of life. We talk about it. I talk about it all the time because it's the greatest insight in life that there's inspiration, then you lose the inspiration, integration, and then you have to build it back. By the way, Jacob, that book, Living Inspired by Rabbi Akiva Tatz, is all about this process. Great book, by the way. Highly recommend it. Um, Mike, Jewish Books, freejewishbooks.com. Everyone should sign up and get a free your, your first two free Jewish books. Steph, you heard about it? Rabbi Kirsch just told me about it. Freejewishbooks.com. You sign up. Is that what it's called, Jacob? You sign up and you get a free book. every uh, two, two books every two months. And you can literally choose of the best Jewish books out there. I certainly recommend everyone check it out. No catch at all. In fact, my rabbi friend got one also. Let me tell you the link. It is freejewishbooks.com. I was right. Okay. So it's through the doing that the that the wisdom comes back, the inspiration comes back. I'll share with you an an, my own personal insight into a line in Perke Avos, Ethics of Our Fathers. It says as follows, do God's will as if it was your will. And, and then in return, God will do your will as if it was his will. And taking at face value, what does that mean?
If you've got God's back, he's got your back. Right? Do God's mitzvahs as if you wanted to, and then he'll do what you want. But the problem with that is that it says, literally in Hebrew, make his will your will. Make it that you want to do what he wants. And then he'll make your will his his your will his will. But you just made your will his will. How can he make then your will his will? You just made his will your will. That means you want what he wants. You want what God wants. And, and then God's going to want what you want. But you don't want anything anymore. You just changed your whole makeup to want what God wants. So I think the answer is as follows. The word do in Hebrew, all, the word make your will also set, means do. And I think it's saying as follows. Do God's will as if it was your will. Do God's will as if it was your will. You don't want to do mitzvahs? Pretend like you want to do them. Fake it till you make it. Do God's will as if it was your will. Do mitzvahs in action. And then in return, God will make your will his will. He'll change your will that you'll want to do mitzvahs. You'll actually enjoy that connection, that relationship. It's all about faking it till you make it through actions. So why is the first mitzvah slavery? Because that is the essence of Judaism. Do not tell this to someone who doesn't know anything about Judaism. They will no longer be interested in learning anything about Judaism. If you don't know anything about Judaism, please stop listening right now. I'm just kidding. What, what am I saying? Slavery is the essence of Judaism because the foundation of Judaism is you have to do what's right even if you don't want to. Do it anyway. And that is what we learned as the Jewish people through slavery in Egypt. It wasn't a happenstance that we had to be that we were slaves in Egypt. No. It was preparation to become the Jewish nation. Because by being slaves, we developed the mentality of you gotta do it even if you don't want to. Your alarm goes off in the morning, you have to get up. Why? Because last week there was a slave master who whipped you if you didn't get up. So next week there's no longer a slave master, but you have to do it anyway. Because ultimately, God wants us to be his servants. He wants us to live a life of connection to doing what's right, to living spiritual lives, to doing spiritual actions. And ultimately, what that requires is for us to overcome our own desires in order to do what we are asked to do. That doesn't mean you have to give up enjoying life because God wants you to enjoy life. That doesn't have to mean that you have to give up your dreams because God wants you to fulfill your dreams. But he wants you to do it as part of your spiritual mission because you are all servants of God. That's the entire Jewish nation. Is this too heavy? I can only see Steph. She's nodding. No, not too heavy. Okay, I don't want to turn anyone off. But ultimately, that's our dream as a Jewish nation is to give up our own independent low-level desires for the higher, bigger purpose desires of making the world a better place, of perfecting ourselves and the world and revealing God in the process. That's the mission of the Jewish people. So now I want to share with you an amazing story that happened to me this week. I hope you'll appreciate it. So last Shabbos, I had a yeshiva student, a uh, like a 17-year-old boy come over to my house. He comes over often on Shabbos and learns with one of my sons. 
and he's really, really smart and, and really passionate. And we usually talk about different Torah concepts. And this week we had a debate about the Hasidic movement. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Hasidic movement, the Hasidic movement was founded in the Ukraine in the 1700s by someone known as Yisrael the Balshemtov. Balshemtov was the founder of the Hasidic movement, means the master of the good name. He was a mystic who wandered in the forests of the Carpathian Mountains, and he inspired Jews to connect to God through simple faith and through joy. He taught people that you can serve God through singing, through dancing, through uh, prayer, and through utilizing your own natural talents. And he really lifted up the world and inspired people to, no matter how learned they were, no matter how religious they were, they could be close to God. And, and it, it spread like wildfire across Eastern Europe from, from the Ukraine to Russia, to Poland, to Hungary, Romania. And the Hasidic Jews really are the majority of Jews who stayed strong to their Judaism despite all the, 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 the suffering and the persecution of the last 200 years, the pogroms throughout Eastern Europe, the Enlightenment, the Reform Movement, and the Holocaust, the Hasidic Jews really held on because of their simple faith and their, and their commitment to serving God through every, every aspect of life, not just through learning Torah, not just in synagogue, but in, uh, through the way you conduct your business, which of course is a Jewish concept, but that was their emphasis. Their emphasis, prior to the Baal Shem Tov, the emphasis was very much on Torah scholarship. If you were not a Torah scholar, you were looked down upon in some communities. But the Baal Shem Tov said, every Jew is the, is the son of God, which is true. It says it in the Torah. Okay, not just one Jew. Every Jew is the son of God. Okay, so now, um, so I was, this student said to me, you know, he doesn't think that the Hasidim are really all that great because um, Hasidim are extremely strict about every aspect of Jewish law except for one. Does anyone have know what one thing Hasidim are a little bit lax in? Jacob? Oh, okay. So that that is a major problem. Um, Jacob said that there are some Hasidic groups that might turn their Rebbe, their master, their, their, their spiritual leader into like an idol. So that uh, that could be an issue. Uh, I don't think it's a, across the board an issue for most groups there is some some of that but very little of that but there is something across the board that's an issue in the hasidic community or seemingly an issue is that hasidim don't do very well with time they are extremely lax in time-bound mitzvahs there's a there's a jewish expression that called like jewish time do you ever hear about jewish time so the more religious you are the worse you are at keeping prompt appointments. Now, that's not true by German Jews. German Jews are extremely punctual, as is the culture of Germany, right? You could set your watch by the trains in Germany and Switzerland. They're so on time. But Eastern European Jews were a little bit more relaxed, especially Hasidic Jews. And the, the Talmud says that there's set times for prayer. In the morning, you have 
basically from sunrise, you have three hours to pray in the morning prayers. Um, yeah. And Hasidim did not do that. They prayed extremely late in the morning. And this, so the student said to me, they're, they're not following Jewish law. They don't pray on time in the morning. Not following Jewish law. And this is a very old Hasidic custom. So I decided to do a little bit of research into this. And what's, it's just unbelievable the way the story worked out. I wanted, you know, I wanted to have something to say to him this week when he comes over to kind of prove to him that he's mistaken. So I decided to listen to a class about a Hasidic master who this student is related to. He's a descendant of someone named Labela Eger. His name was Yehuda Leib Eger, who was the grandson of the greatest rabbi in that generation. Someone by the name of Rabbi Akiva Eger, who lived in Posen, Germany, uh, uh, Poland, right on the border with Germany. We went there on our Poland trip two years ago because Rage Rabbi Akiva Pollock is a descendant of this rabbi. Named after him, Akiva Pollock is named after Rabbi Akiva Eger. And so Rabbi Eger's grandson was expected to be the leader of the Jewish world in Torah scholarship, but he defected and became a Hasidic Jew at the time that there was a major split between the Hasidim and the non-Hasidim. The Hasidim were seen as a new sect. They were not so accepted. They did things different. They drank. They danced. They sang all the time. They did things unique. There were rumors about them doing cartwheels during prayer services. They were really out there. And so the family was extremely upset that this luminary, who they expected would be the next leader of the, Jew, of the Jewish world, became a Hasidic Jew, a disciple of a radical sect of spiritual, new age, mystical Jews. and. One day, his, um, his father came to visit him, and he told his father what he learned as a Hasidic follower. And there are a bunch of stories of people who became Hasidic followers back in those days. One is the Balatanya, the founder of, the, of Chabad Hasidus. When he went to study by the disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, they asked him, why did you go there? As opposed to going to the center of Torah scholarship, Talmudic scholarship in Vilna. And he said, because I already knew how to learn Torah, but I didn't know how to pray. And the Hasidim taught you how to pray with fire. Okay, another amazing story of one of the early Hasidic masters. They said his family was against him becoming Hasidic. And they said, what did you learn there? What did you learn that you, you had to go to the Hasidim? What, why did you have to go to the Baal Shem Tov? Why couldn't you learn it here? And he said, because the Baal Shem Tov taught me that there's a God. And they said, you didn't know there was a God? Everyone knows there's a God. They say they called over the servant, you know, the, the cleaning lady. And they said, they said, uh, they said, Olga, do you know, do you believe in God? She said, of course I believe in God. They said, see, even the non-Jewish cleaning lady knows there's a God. And he said, no, no, she believes there's a God. I know there's a God. The Hasidic movement was to teach people to experientially connect to the reality of God in their life. So, Rabbi Akiva Eger's father, uh, Rabbi Labela Eger's father came to see what was going on with the Hasidim and to bring his son home. And he said, what are you doing here? What are you learning here? And he said to him, I learned three things here with the Hasidim. One is I learned that an angel is an angel. The second thing I learned is that a 
A man is a man. And the third thing I learned is that a man is even greater than an angel. That they taught the greatness of a human being. Another thing he told his father-in-law was that one thing I learned is that the greater you are, the smaller you are. The greater you are internally, spiritually, the less you think about yourself. Like we mentioned before, humility, definition of humility, is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. It's making room for others, making space for God, letting God shine through you. So Rebbe Labela Eger's grandfather, the great master of the generation, Rebbe Akiva Eger, who's written in every single Talmud, his notes are written on the side of the Talmud, called for his grandson to go speak to him. And he wanted to talk, everyone assumed he was going to talk him out of being Hasidic. And then it's, I listened to a tape about, about his life, Rebbe Label Eger's life, because I wanted to respond to this student who was complaining about Hasidim. And then it turns out in the tape I was listening to, Label Eger goes to his Rebbe and he says, I'm very nervous about going to my grandfather because he might ask me why Hasidim pray so late. And I don't know how to answer that. The same question that this guy told me. He was, I, was, I couldn't believe it. And his rabbi said to him, tell him that a paid worker, a day worker, is allowed to charge his, mass, his, his boss for travel expenses, according to the Talmud, according to the Torah. A day laborer can charge his boss for travel expenses. He says the Hasidim are simply working so much on preparing for, that, for prayer that they just can't make the time because anxiety is the greatest is the greatest barrier to connection to spirituality so they want to avoid all anxiety they want to they spend hours and hours just preparing themselves to get their heart open enough to be able to have a true communion with god so that that's the story and i thought that was amazing because I, I he literally came to my house and he's a grandson of this Hasidic master who, who became Hasidic and who was also bothered by this point and who received an answer. And then the next day I was blown away because the next morning I found out that that day was the yurt site, the day of the death of Rebbe Le of Lebele Eger, of this, this Hasidic master. So I, I just couldn't believe it. I felt like it was, he was shining down upon me. So then a few days ago, I actually heard in a class I was listening to a Torah teaching that he teaches on this week's Parsha, which ties together what we learned. So says Labla Eger, why is it that this, the, the law of freeing a slave is the first law given to the Jewish people? And he answers, because the Torah is telling us right now we're standing at Mount Sinai. Right now, we have clarity that there's one God. And as we said last week, the, the, one, the idea of there being one God is the source of all the positive mitzvahs. It's a source of a life of tranquility and connection, knowing there's, there's only, everything is from Hashem. We don't need to get angry. We don't need to get jealous. We don't need to be insecure. Hashem is running the world. And we learn don't, not to worship idols. There's nothing but God. Don't worship yourself. Don't run after false gods. Don't run after ego and money. And yet, a person is a person. And someday, we're going to fall. 
Someday we're going to lose that clarity of mind. As the Talmud says, the only free person is someone who learns Torah. Because Torah teaches you to control your desires, your animal urges, your bodily desires, your, your desire to run after all sorts of pleasures that can never really be met. And someday, he says, we're going to become addicted. We're going to become enslaved to another master. Who's that other master? Our addictions, our phones, our unhealthy relationships, our bad habits, food, drugs, physical desire, lust, our jobs, our egos, the news. And says Rabbi Eger that on the seventh year, every slave goes free. Because no matter how far you fall, no matter how addicted you become to other forces that are enslaving you, on the seventh, he says, is an allusion to Shabbos. On Shabbos, everyone goes free. Because Shabbos is the day to connect to the soul. And I just saw today another idea that the seventh dimension, the Maral explains, the famed Maral of Prague, great Kabbalist, of Prague, whose synagogue we visited on the Prague, on the Poland, Prague, Poland trip. The Maral says that the physical world is basically broken down into six parts. That's the six days. The seventh dimension is the inner space, right? If you take a cube, a cube is made up of six sides. That's the physical world. The seventh dimension is the inside of that cube. That's the soul. The seventh dimension never becomes enslaved. No matter how far you fall, the part of your soul that heard God speak on Mount Sinai and your souls were all there is always pure and is always able to reconnect by connecting to the soul. Shabbos is the day to turn off the phone, to stop running after the desires of this world, the physical pleasures that lead to emptiness and to focus on spiritual pleasure, to focus on true connection and true relationships. Shabbos is a day to reconnect to the soul and that is the secret of breaking free from all addictions, all bad habits, because all addictions come from the same place, I believe. Carl Jung, the great disciple of, of Sigmund Freud, writes that all addictions come from spiritual hunger, from thirst from emptiness, from feeling spiritually empty, and you seek to fill it up with sex, with drugs, with, with, with music, with internet, with shopping, with gambling, we fill ourselves up because we feel empty. That's why, if you ever notice, when you go to the fridge and you look in the fridge and, and there's nothing there, you can't find what you're looking for, and then you close, and then a few minutes later you open it again, as if something changed in the past five minutes, the reality is, why do you do that? It's because you're not looking for food. You're not really hungry. You're feeling empty. And we try to stuff down that emptiness and fill it with something. Fill it with noise. Fill it with food. Fill it with alcohol to drown out that emptiness. The reality is that emptiness is a longing for spirituality. It's a longing of the soul to connect to your true purpose. Shabbos is the medicine. It's the cure for all addictions. Because Shabbos is a time to cut out the noise and be present with who you really are. And if you do that, you don't need 
the addictions. You don't need the slavery. So Shabbos is a day when all slaves go free. That's the message of this week's Parsha. Why does it say the ear that heard, you are my servants, has to get bored on the doorpost? God didn't say that in Egypt when he took us out, you, you are my servants. The answer is, is that's why he took us out. He took us out of Egypt so that we would become his messengers in this world. The ear that heard, I am the Lord your God, heard that I am a servant, you are my servant, because that is the purpose of the entire Torah, that we should become godly people, that we should no longer be regular people. We should be holy people who are, who are holier than angels by taking our physicality and lifting it up and using it in the service of the divine. Nasef and Nishma will do and will listen that we accept upon ourselves to do like a servant. We're going to do God's will even if we don't understand it. That is the purpose of creation. That's why the slave, the guy who decides to be a slave, gets his ear bored because he's missing the point. The point is not to find another master, not to become enslaved to something else. You don't need to be enslaved to anything else. You don't need to steal. You don't need to go through improper means to, to fill yourself up because literally what you really want is connection to the infinite. That's what we all want. And in conclusion, I want to share with you, I think I mentioned this last week, but thanks to my wonderful holy wife, I have taken notifications off my phone. So my phone now is only a text and talk phone. I no longer get WhatsApp. I no longer get Facebook. I no longer get email on my phone. And it's literally freed me. Because now I'm not a slave to looking. Oh, did I get anything? Did I get anything? Did I get anything? Did I get anything? And there's so many times there's nothing you need to see. So if, I, if, if you want to contact me, text me or call me if it's important. If it's not important, you can WhatsApp me, and I'll check my WhatsApp during business hours. Unbelievable. I feel free for the first time in many, many years. So I recommend if you don't do that, try it for one day a week. Try turning off your phone, all your notifications, your phone, the whole thing on Shabbos. Try it. See what it's like to be alive without being a slave to this device. And you know what? If you can't do a whole Shabbos, try for one hour. Try for one hour. Turn it off and just experience what it used to be like in the 90s before we all had a master that was glued to our belt 24-7. Life back then... We had all sorts of other things we were enslaved to. But I got to tell you, we were a little more present because this thing has literally become a game changer in taking people out of reality. So I, I want to wish you all a beautiful Shabbos and a beautiful week and a beautiful life of connection, of real connection to yourself and to others and to the infinite. And uh, it's been a pleasure speaking, and I hope to hear from you guys soon. Questions, comments?